Well, good morning. Someone said, hey, thanks, Josh. Yeah. I hope you're feeling a little bit better than I am. I did not feel well all day yesterday, and my stomach does not feel good this morning. So if I just duck out, just I'll, I'll try to turn the mic off. Um, so let me pray for us. Um, Our Father, we thank you that you bless us through Jesus. We thank you that um, we get to worship you this morning and that we get um, to read your words and talk about your things. Father, pray that your spirit would meet us here this morning and that you um, would move in our hearts and that you would call us into deeper worship of you. Father, pray for Brad as well in Australia. Father, pray that you would give him great power as he speaks there and that you would equip the church there uh, to walk in your ways pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in the middle of a series uh, on the Beatitudes. Beatitudes is really one of those kind of like big Christian words. I don't know where we make them up like that, but we do. Um, it just really means blessed or divine joy. Um, and so the Beatitudes are really uh, descriptions of what it means to be blessed. And we find Jesus' teachings in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. If you want to open there, I'm going to begin reading in just a minute. But Jesus basically compiles, or Matthew compiles Jesus' teaching here for us. Um, And in verse 1, he starts by this. And I'm going to just read all of them, and then we're going to go back and look at verse 7 specifically today. Uh, And this idea is, blessed are the merciful. So Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach. I want to stop there for just one second, because I just kind of, I love this detail. I was listening, yes, last week, and I was reading that. And just this idea that Jesus sits down, like the, uh, the, the God of the universe, the one uh, walking around who's doing these amazing miracles, or people are coming from all over the place to see him. He sits down, and he just teaches There's no posturing. There's no display of position. Instead, the one who has all authority sits down as the king and speaks these kingdom words to all who would listen. It's this detail that just like shows his humility. It's his desire for relationship and his intimacy. And it's just this this, this great thing is just kind of comes in as it starts as God's explaining his perspective on what it means to be blessed. I'm really hot for some reason. Not that too, but um, anyway. Um, so he talks about this in verse 3. He says this. He says this is what um, the kingdom will include in verse 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if you look at this as an entire um, whole, you see how Jesus kind of lays out the blessings here. And he starts 
um, by describing what, what a blessed person is. He says they're poor, they're in poverty-stricken in spirit, they're people who mourn, they're people who grieve over the sins and the misery uh, and their condition of the brokenness of this world. They live in meekness. They're, they're people that, that understand their condition and, and they walk in a manner that reflects that. And, then, and it says, from that place of blessedness, from that place of blessed emptiness, really, that's where the hunger and the thirst for righteousness is born and sought after. Then Jesus goes on and he builds on that description in, in verses 7, 8, and 9, and he gives us three, three descriptions of, of how this hunger and thirst for righteousness flourishes in the heart of the hungry. It's, it flourishes in mercy, in purity, and in peacemaking. So in other words, these six things that, that you can count on when you're part of the kingdom of God, um, and honestly, as you think about those things, as I think about those things, like, probably not something we sign up for right away. Right? Like those aren't the things that, we, that, that really are enticing to our hearts. But he says these, are, these things are things you can count on. But then he doesn't just leave us there. He says the good news alongside of these things, alongside of being poor in spirit, alongside of being a person that mourns, alongside of being a person that is, walks in meekness and mercy and purity and peacemaking, Jesus also promises results or fruit. He describes fruit that comes from each one of these things. He says, he says this, that the kingdom brings comfort, that the kingdom brings earth ownership, that the kingdom brings satisfied righteousness, that the kingdom brings mercy, that in the kingdom you're able to see God. If you remember from the Old Testament, um, no one can see God and live. If you remember the story of Moses, he, God even hides him behind a rock and, and he just gets to see a small glimpse of God's backside. Um, this, this is a mind-blowing statement that Jesus is making right here. That this is an amazing thing that we get to see God. And not only do we get to see God, but we get this awesome title of son or daughter in the kingdom. And so this is, this is amazing news that God is talking about. It's an amazing kingdom. And the good news is that you don't have to pick one of these promises and say, I'll just take this or, or I'll just take that, that I get to see God. Or You get all of these. these. All of these things belong to the kingdom. And Jesus is inviting people like you and me into the kingdom. And Jesus is inviting us and he's saying, who wants to be a part of this kingdom? Who wants comfort? Who wants earth ownership? Who wants satisfied righteousness? Who wants mercy? Who wants to be able to see God? Who wants to be a part of my family? Who wants that? As I think about that, I'm I'm like, I'm signing up. I want that. I do. I want those things. I feel like we could actually just even stop there and just think about that and sit in that reality. But there's more than that here. Because if you look at the tenses of what, how Jesus speaks these things, how he uses to describe the kingdom, um, they're, not, they're not the same. He gives us both a present kingdom and a future kingdom. Which means that we don't just have to endure sitting around in the pain and brokenness of this world waiting for the future hope of the kingdom. We get to be exposed to the, to the glimmers and, and pieces and parts of the kingdom right now. Take a look at verse 3. He says this in verse 3 and verse 10. They both say this. Theirs is the kingdom. Verse 10 says the same thing. Theirs is the kingdom. That's a present tense. Right? That's a present tense. Jesus, it's a reality that Jesus is describing. It's a promise that's already secure. The other side of that we see in verses 3 through 9 where Jesus speaks about the future. And he says, 
It says, they shall be comforted, or they shall inherit the earth. It's a way that Jesus is saying in, in some sense that the kingdom of heaven is both present right now with his disciples, and, the, the, and then also the full blessings of the kingdom, where they will, they shall inherit, will be in the future. Just the reality that, that Jesus has actually brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. That we get to now enjoy a foretaste of it right here and right now. But then even more than that, the full experience of his kingdom will get to know completely when he returns. How do we know that? Well, if you look at the book of Revelation, um, you can actually do this with all of them. The description that Jesus gives here in the future um, is also told in the book of Revelation where he's going to return and set up his kingdom. You can just look, take a look at verse 4. I'll just do one of these for you. I think it should be on the screen. Verse 4, um, compare that with Revelation 21.4. Verse 4 says, Those who mourn will one day be comforted. Revelation 21.4 says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. There's, there, shall be no, there shall be mourning, there shall be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. It's a future promise of the kingdom, the reality of the kingdom when Jesus returns, that we get to experience in a present reality. Which is why Jesus says later on in the book of Matthew, says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Because even though our reward in heaven is a final comfort and is kept for us in heaven, we get to now rejoice in the midst of suffering. Why? Because the future comfort leads us to present joy. In other words, in joy we experience now a foretaste of that future promise. Because really, there's no joy without some element of comfort. Right? It's the same as with the verses we look at, verse 7 today, is blessed are those who um, shall receive mercy. They're blessed. They're blessed shall be... Man, I cannot talk this morning. A little later in Matthew... We'll, we'll see in Matthew 18, Jesus shares this parable, and he shares a story um, that, of the unforgiving servant. And the king forgives this servant of a great debt, but the servant then goes out, and he, he is unwilling to, to forgive a tiny debt from a fellow servant. And the king say, comes to him and he says, You wicked servant, in verse 33 he says this, Should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And so Jesus is telling us that we don't just wait for some future age to come to receive mercy. It's already come in Jesus. We get to taste it and feel it right now in our own forgiveness of our sins in his mercy. Mercy that we've received, we then extend to others who are undeserving just like us. You see, it's this idea that really mercy comes from mercy. Our mercy to each other comes from God's mercy to us. Romans 5 says it this way, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. The good news is that God has extended mercy to undeserving people. Undeserving people like you and me. Through the death and through the resurrection of Jesus. And it's out of that abundance that out of that abundance of mercy that's been given to us, that mercy flows out of us to others. Romans 11 says the same thing. Romans 11, 30 says this, Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy, 
as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient, in order that they too may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy on you. See, mercy always comes from mercy. The past mercy you've received at the cross allows you to have present mercy in the daily walk. And if you don't walk in light of your past reality, the future mercy um, isn't there for you in the kingdom. You don't, the future mercy you'll receive in the new kingdom is as you extend that mercy to others. I'm not saying that's how you receive salvation. Please don't hear that. But it's this idea that as we walk in mercy, we, we, we demonstrate that we're actually part of the kingdom now. You see, mercy really comes from a heart that has first felt its spiritual bankruptcy. A heart that, that comes to grieve its sin. A heart that's, that's learned to wake meekly for the timing of the Lord and to call out in hunger for the work of God's mercy to satisfy the righteousness that we need. Right? Mercy, mercy is different than pity. Pity often comes from a, from a place of self-righteousness. But mercy comes from a place of a broken heart. Being a merciful person um, is to become a broken person. Mercy, mercy is what grows up as the fruit of a person in a broken heart. You see, the only way that we're going to extend true mercy is to understand in our heart that everything that you, that you have, everything that you are, um, everything that, that is about you is actually due to sheer divine mercy that you've received. We talked about this in our leaders' training last Saturday, but this idea that, that, that um, in order for us to see and to help understand the root of what's going on in our lives, we actually have to compare and our understand of who God is and what He's done and who that makes us to be, and then we live from that reality. Right? So if we're going to be merciful people, it's imperative that we actually cultivate a view of God. A view of God that then defines a view of ourself. That helps us say with all of our heart that every joy, every good thing that I have is not from any work that I have done. But it's from a free, undeserving mercy that God has extended to me. And He extends to others. I think as we think about that, like as we think about mercy, yes, we always like, yes, I want mercy. Right? I was talking to my neighbor Roger this week, and he always asked me, hey, what are you talking about this week? And I said, oh, I'm talking about the Beatitudes. And he's like, well, what is that? And, and we, I said, well, I'm talking about mercy. And, and Roger says, yes, I want mercy. He's like, no one wants justice. We actually want mercy. Roger knows that. He doesn't know Jesus, but he knows he wants mercy. As I think about that, I want to stop for a second and ask a question, because I think it's really easy for us to say, yes, that's true, I've received mercy but then we never apply it to our current situations. So I want to ask this question. Why don't we want to extend mercy? What are some of the reasons why we hold back being merciful to others? Why don't we want to extend mercy? We don't want them to win. We don't want them to win. Yeah, in some ways they're going to win if we, if we let them mercy. Yeah, good. Yeah, we'd rather see them get justice even though we don't want justice ourselves. Yeah, good. What else? If I don't extend mercy to someone, then I can keep on feeling like I'm better than them. Mm, you can keep on feeling that you're better than them if you don't extend mercy. Yeah, good. Somebody else. Mm. 
Yeah, we, we always put someone lower than us when we compare them, for sure. Yeah, good. Yeah, mercy is too costly for us. Yeah. Mm. We don't want to have to put in the effort to lower our own position of self-pride in order to uplift somebody else. Yeah, we have to remove our pride. That's what it means to be a broken person, right? To really understand our position. Yeah, good. What else? Yeah, I think oftentimes we don't extend mercy because we're hurt. We want someone else to feel that pain too. Yeah. Mm. Because that's the last time you want to make sure your brother eats your sandwich again. Yeah, we don't want it to happen again. Right? Yeah, if I extend them mercy, that's going to give them the right to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. I think... I mean, there's so many reasons why we don't want to extend mercy, right? But as I think about this, I think the main reason or the underlying reason we don't extend mercy is that we have the wrong goal in mind. And I think this problem leads to a misunderstanding of what true mercy is. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 12. Romans 12.1 says this, um, and I want to encourage you to go back and read the whole chapter. Um, We're not going to read it all today. Um, But Romans 12 says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And he goes on the rest of the chapter, and he calls us and he describes what a life of mercy looks like. Um, I want to just give you a couple highlights. Um, Verse 80 says, show mercy with cheerfulness. Verse 9, he says, let your love be genuine. In verse 13, he says, give to the saints. In verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you. Verse 15, he says, weep with those who weep. Verse 16, he says, associate with the lowly. Verse 17, repay no evil for evil. Verse uh, 19, never avenge yourself. Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Over and over and over again in this chapter, um, God describes what it's like to actually be merciful. And please see this. This all starts with the goal of mercy, which comes from verse 1, which is worship. You see, before God calls us to be merciful, He calls us to be worshipful. Right? And the problem is that we often, as people, get that backwards. Right? We, we're people who, who do acts of mercy, but we never make much of Jesus about it. When that happens, we become the merciful one. We become the one worth worshiping, rather than our worship of Jesus resulting in mercy towards others. This backwards lifestyle leads to all kinds of issues. It leads to works-based righteousness. It leads to burnout. We've been talking about our cultural moment this year, right? This leads to to living in a culture of affirmation where people all over the place, people even claiming to be Christians alike, are affirming sin and calling it mercy. They're calling it mercy and it's walking with grace with others. I want to tell you, that is not mercy. That is poor theology that claims that we're really more gracious than God. That's a Sarah quote. 
It's like this idea that if, if you're walking up to someone and you see someone who's on the side of the road and he's got a broken leg and it's sticking out and it's bleeding all over the sidewalk and you walk up and say, yeah, you know what, I want to affirm that's okay. Continue walking that way. It's perfectly healthy. That doesn't make you a merciful person. It makes you a foolish person. It's not merciful to make people more comfortable as they continue to walk in, into destruction. That's not mercy. I know that's not a popular message in our city, but we are not an affirming church. We do not applaud sin and say, you're so brave to walk in that brokenness. And why don't we do that? It's not because we're not broken ourselves. It's not because we're above everyone else. It's because God is not an affirming God. God has never changed from the beginning of time. His message has always been the same. It's always been the same. Living outside of my ways is always going to lead to death, spiritually and physically. And God has made that message very clear from the very beginning. God does not affirm sin. He does not affirm brokenness. And he does not allow people to continue in it. He doesn't just say, pick whatever part you like. Pick whatever part you like about what I said. Whatever you don't like, just throw it out. He doesn't say that. God actually despises that. God is not tolerant. God's not tolerant of sin. He's not tolerant of people taking His place as God of their lives. It's why Jesus came to die, so that sin could actually be rooted out of the life of people. The culture that we live in honors, affirms, celebrates, and is tolerant of the wrong things. Things that are in direct defiance to God's truth. And we cannot allow the unhealthy to have a louder voice and to dictate to the healy, to the healed, what a healed life actually looks like. Mercy is not affirming the cultural narrative. Mercy is actually graciously and kindly and boldly calling people to worship God. What we affirm in this church and what we affirm as the people of God are the truths of God. Because they actually bring life actually bring abundant life both now and in the future for all eternity. This is exactly why worship of Him has to come first before mercy to others. We must be a worshiping people in order to be a merciful people. It's why we encourage you to be a part of a missional community, that you would go and be discipled in His worship. It's why we encourage you to make this gathering a priority so that we would develop a heart of worship and disciple one another in the worship of the most valuable treasure in all the eternity and in all the universe, God himself. You know why Jesus came to earth? You know why he lived a sinless life? Why he said in the garden, not my will but yours? Why? Because he loved and he valued his relationship with the Father. That's what drove him. That was his fire. He loved the presence of, his fa- of the Father. That was his promised land, if you want to say it that way. The presence of God. And he delighted in it. And what is amazing as you think about Jesus is that he gave up that relationship so that you and I could receive mercy instead of justice. And on the cross, he extended that mercy to us. And he was separated from the Father. I think often as we think about the cross, we can think about the physical nature of Jesus' death and how painful that was and how it was the worst way to die and how he was humiliated. And although that was horrific and um, that was horrific physically, the spiritual torment that took place on the cross was far worse than that. 
Why? Because Jesus was abandoned by his father. He was separated from his father, a place he had never experienced before. He'd never been separated from the father for all eternity. They've existed in perfect triune relationship. Jesus was cut off, abandoned, alone, shown no mercy, shown no peace, shown no relationship, and shown no grace. And Jesus gave up his rights, his authority, his position, his relationship, so that you and I could have mercy, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, so that we could then once again worship God and have intimacy with God. You see, the good news of Jesus is that when you've received Jesus' mercy instead of his justice that you and I are due, you get to now delight in the presence of the Father. You get to delight in the presence of the Father and the Son through the Spirit. That's one of the the Spirit's jobs. In John 14, it says that the Father sent the Spirit. In John 15, it says that Jesus sent the Spirit. And so what this means is that the Spirit of God can communicate both the person and the presence of both the Father and the Son as the Spirit indwells you. It's why Jesus says, Lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. It's why Paul calls us the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit now communicates the person in the presence of Jesus and the persons in the presence of the Father. Why? So that we might turn and worship Him. So that we would turn from the things that our culture, that our hearts, that our minds want to run after, the foolish things of the world that we want to worship, and that we turn our true worship to Him. And living in that reality, growing in that, delighting in that, living in that place is, ultimate, what is ultimately what worship is about. That we would be in the presence of God, that we would enjoy the presence of God. I want to tell you, God's presence is the only thing that will ever change you to be merciful. It's the only thing. No person, no no job, no anything. The only thing that can change you is the presence of God. It can change you from a person who does random acts of mercy to actually a merciful person. See, the presence of God is what what Paul says in Romans 8, that, that you've been says you've been given a deposit of your inheritance. Right? That already you've inherited, you've been given it, but the rest is coming. You've been given the presence of God right now. You see, our inheritance is not just a mansion on a hill. Right? It's not just that we get to run around in a new heavens and a new earth and we get to experience those things. That's, that's going to be great. right? But you're blessed right now because your inheritance is actually God himself. And we get to experience his mercy right now as we wait for the future. Because in the future, there's not going to be a sun or a moon, right? Because God lights up the place in his very, with his very presence. And we've been given the presence of God right now. So that through mercy to others, they would see the light of God. It's really what verse 14 says in our passage. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp or put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its shade and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, the good news is that that we worship um, God and His presence 
the more that we worship God, his presence is more realized in our lives and we become more and more merciful. And we extend more of that mercy to others and more of God's light is actually seen. More of God's presence, that's really what it means, God's light, his presence shines in this world and in this city and in, as others turn and worship him alongside of us. That's what we delight in. That's what mercy is really about. It's my prayer really that, that all of us, that we would actually delight in the presence of God more than anything else. That when temptations come, we would delight in the presence of God. That when trials and sufferings come in your life, when you're not shown mercy from others, when your expectations are not met, when you have to have hard conversations with people, when your kids don't listen, when you're wronged, when it seems like there's no mercy, we would actually delight in the presence of God. And we would worship Him, and that would result in mercy towards others. Because that's really good news for our city. That's really good news because no one else is extending mercy because they haven't been extended mercy. I want to close with these questions for you to consider and to pray over and think about in your own life. The first is this. Have you received God's mercy instead of His justice? Have you received it? Maybe you're here and you have never received God's mercy. And God wants to extend that to you. But if you have, I want you to remember, you've received God's mercy instead of justice. And the second question is this. Who do you need to extend mercy to? Maybe it's today. Maybe it's this past week. Maybe it's someone who you need to extend mercy to that's been a a long-going process. Who is it that God is calling you to extend mercy to so that they would see and turn and worship him? Father, I pray that you um, would reveal your truth in our lives. Father, I pray that you um, would allow us to walk in faith, allowing more light, uh, more of your light and more of your presence to be seen in this city. Father, I pray that you would make us a worshipful people, a people that turn from the things uh, of this culture and the things of this world that distract us from seeing you and that we want to put more hope and trust in than you. Father, I pray that we would be satisfied with your presence. Father, I pray that we would desire to be in your presence all the time. Father, pray that that would be our ultimate goal, is worship of you, not any other thing we want to achieve in this world. Father, pray that you would make us a merciful people so that people would see you, that we would be known as as a church, as a family, um, that extends mercy, not because um, we want to affirm sin, but because we want people to see Jesus. Father, I pray that that reality would come to bear in our city. Father, I pray for um, the other followers of Jesus in this city, that you um, would, through your Spirit, equip them to worship you more and more. 
Father, pray that you would change this city and that we would be about worshiping you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.